Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When we look back at the early 21st century, there's a pretty good chance that one of the big tick marks on the timeline of our era will be the invention of the genome editing technology CRISPR. It fundamentally changed how biotechnologists can alter the genetic code of all kinds of organisms. So maybe it's not surprising that UC Berkeley and the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT have been locked in a years-long tussle over the patent rights. This week, Berkeley's coalition lost a major battle with an appeals board of the U.S. Patent Office, and we'll discuss what that means for the medical and agricultural applications of this technology and survey the local repercussions, too. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Back in 2012, the lab run by UC Berkeley scientist Jennifer Doudna, working with French scientist Emmanuel Charpentier, revealed a powerful system for editing genomes based on a natural bacterial system called CRISPR-Cas9. But they were not the only scientists looking to harness that genome editing pathway. And across the country, a lab at Harvard and MIT's Broad Institute was able to deploy CRISPR in living cells. Doudna and Charpentier shared a Nobel Prize in 2020 for this work, but she and her team will not own the patents to the technology if the new patent ruling withstands another appeal. This could cost UC Berkeley hundreds of millions of dollars in licensing revenue as companies commercialize this biotechnology. Here to discuss the local and global implications of the ruling, we're joined by Megan Molteni, a science writer for Stat News. Welcome, Megan. Good morning. And Samantha Zients, a research fellow in intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. Zients. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, I want to start with you. It's a little complicated, to say the least, to explain the legal wrangling here. But walk us through the nuts and bolts of of what happened here. Sure thing. So, you know, this this legal saga is now coming up on almost eight years. Um, what happened was in May 2020, Downa's team at Berkeley um, and Charpentier, who is then at Umea University in Sweden, they uh, went to the U.S. Patent Office to file their first CRISPR patent applications. May 2012. And- 2012. Yep. Yeah. And later that year, so in December, the Broad filed its own application, but they paid to expedite that process. So they were actually awarded the patent first months before Doudna and Charpentier. And so in 2016, lawyers representing the University of California filed for what's called an interference proceeding. So they essentially were petitioning to have the Broad's patents thrown out. Mm-hmm. Um 
patent judges ruled against that. And they at first they said there was no interference, meaning the two groups inventions were distinct from one another, because what the Broad had showed in particular was that they had gotten CRISPR-Cas9 to work in what are called eukaryotic cells. So these are cells that have nuclei in them that hold the DNA. And those are the kinds of cells that are in make up your body and my body. And, and they're kind of key to developing the most lucrative application of CRISPR-Cas9, which are human therapies. Um, and so for a while, it kind of appeared that the Broad would get CRISPR in those kinds of cells and the University of California would get their patents for bacteria, mm, bacteria and other kinds of cells. Bacteria mm -hmm. or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And University of California appealed the setback, um, but they eventually, they wound up losing that in the U.S. Court of Appeals um, for the federal court. And then what happened, for, uh, it, we thought that was kind of going to be the end of it. But in 2018, the University of California filed new patent applications specifically for these applications in eukaryotic cells. And that was intended to kind of spur a new interference fight. And so that kind of, um, in 2020, the U.S. Patent and Trial Appeal Board rejected those arguments, but then they announced that there would have a hearing um, to determine the priority of these new patent fines. So that, that kind of brings us up to uh, February of this year when there were oral arguments in this case, and then we had this decision on Monday. And so I think what's important to take out of all of that is it doesn't invalidate all of the University of California's patents, um, but specifically the ones that we're talking about when we're talking about developing human medicines. Ah, I see, I see. I mean, you cover this stuff for, for STAT. Is this unique among sort of biotechnology patent fights, or is this like sort of fairly common in this realm of the world? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by that. So there's, in some ways, what I think is interesting about this case is it's it's kind of a um, vestige of an of our old patent law. So if what we used to have at the time um, that this fight kicked off um, was a system in which it was first to invent. That was the thing you had to prove. And now it's now it's just first to file. Um, and so in some ways, the kind of way this has played out with these really drawn out um court proceedings where we have to pull out all this lab notebooks and get you know testimony from all the inventors to figure out when exactly did you get this to work and in what kind of cells you know that that kind of patent fight certainly um, doesn't happen anymore and then I think the other thing and patent fights happen all the time in the biotech world but the other thing that is makes this sets this apart is that we're talking about just an incredibly foundational platform technology. So, you know, CRISPR-Cas9, um, at the time in 2012, um, you know, it Cas9 was like the entire CRISPR universe. And it was like that one enzyme powered like the entire promise of CRISPR mm -hmm. gene editing. And so the stakes for owning it, you know, couldn't have been higher. But since then, there've been like a rush of discoveries to, you know, make new versions of CRISPR and use different, what Cas9 is called a nuclease or an enzyme. So to make new enzymes and, and kind of evolve out this, um, yeah, this kind of universe of CRISPR based tools. And so the question I think, you know, going forward is to what extent do all of those tools that in some way stem from this first discovery like, do they, do they, are they going to require, you know, are companies that are pursuing that going to require access to these foundational um, IP, you know, portfolios? Because 
it's because it was like the first one. And because, as I said, it's like what we consider a platform technology. So I think those are the ways in which this is unique and why people are still watching it fairly closely. That's so interesting. Dr. Zients, looking at this from with your sort of research hat on, how do you evaluate these kinds of claims to who might who should hold these patents? It, it actually ends up being a really interesting question. Um, and, and in addition to, is this sort of normal, is sort of this divi- division now between who got the Nobel Prize and who got the mm-hmm. patent, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I, I wasn't super surprised by the decision uh, that the uh, patent office came up with because of the decision in the first interference that Megan uh, described so beautifully. Um, it seemed like they wanted to divide up the world a little bit. But if you look at the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, they describe CRISPR as the platform. It doesn't matter on what you're doing it. So the scientific community claims, you know, that CRISPR is this, you know, very specific tool. Um, but the patent office is starting to allow for what I would call narrower patents. Hmm. Um, and there's some goods and bads to that. Um, you know, obviously it becomes a little more confusing, as Megan said, as to who needs what license to what patent now, because CVC still owns the basic one. Right. Um, that's the UC system. Right? Yes, that's yeah. the UC system. Um, and uh, Broad now apparently owns the one for eukaryotic. Um, and the complication there, of course, is companies like Intellia don't have access right now to the MIT uh, portfolio. I I mean, they might have to get it. Uh, So you see, you know, so so we'll see some of these issues. But at the same time, putting my economist hat on, uh, it allows for some more competition. Right. And so having one person own all of the technology uh, could actually be fair. It could be blocking. Hmm. Um, And so allowing for some competition uh, allows people to, uh, you know, really start to invent other other uh, solutions to CRISPR. Like Megan said, there are other enzymes that are now becoming really popular. And I've seen this in some of my research where people are like, yeah, all right, maybe we don't need to use Cas9 anymore. Let's find something else um, and go that direction. You know, I wanted to ask you about uh, Jennifer Doudna's comment to uh, to Megan, actually. Um, she said, you know, today's U.S. PT, Patent and Trademark Office ruling is surprising and contrary to what more than 30 countries in the Nobel Prize Committee have decided regarding the invention of CRISPR-Cas9 genome engineering technology for use in all cell types, in- including human cells. This latest decision will be appealed. So uh, two pieces of that. One... This the international regime that's developing is quite different from the sort of domestic U.S. one. Does that present uh, any problems? And then is there a chance that this decision will be appealed and, you know, and Berkeley could yet win? So uh, actually, the, the, the global implications of this are more complicated than just the U.S., Right. So anybody who now wants to uh, make users sell uh, CRISPR-Cas9 in, you know, across the globe, say both in the U.S. and Europe, now have to navigate this patchwork of rights. Because as you've pointed out, uh, Jennifer Doudna and and her team is doing far better in the fights in the EPO in Europe than they are doing here in the U.S. Um, And so some folks have just gotten around that by saying, fine, I'm only going to stay in one jurisdiction. You see this in China, actually, a lot, where they're like, we're going to just do Chinese patents, and that's the end of the day, and we're not going to mess with anybody else. Um, 
but uh, it, that that will create a lot more confusion for a while. Um, and uh, confusion and uncertainty is always a problem from from a corporate standpoint, right? The more we know, the easier it is to just say, "Fine, these are the people we need to get licenses from and move on." Um, uh, in terms of whether they're going to appeal, uh, sure, they absolutely. You know, Jennifer Doudna and, and Berkeley absolutely could. I'm kind of hoping they don't. <laughs> How come? How come? Oh, uh, well, because mostly because of this uncertainty question, like we've been living with this basically since CRISPR started. Right. And fo so folks are just like, please just give me an answer mm -hmm. <laughs> so that I know that I can move forward. Um, you know, there are lots of companies I've spoken to sort of off the record that are like, yeah, we're, we're working with this, but we don't want to do anything with it because we're afraid we're going to get sued. Mm. Um and at the moment, it doesn't matter too much because um, there aren't a lot of like actual products. So it, it's not really worth, uh, you know, putting out this huge, you know, product litigation, you know, over a patent. But the minute there is, you know, this is, you know, billion, if not trillion dollar industry that we're talking about here, potentially. So that's going to be a big mess. Um, and if, if, if we could just end this interference, people will have a better sense of, you know, who actually owns what, we'll get rid of some of the uncertainty. And at a certain point, I don't, you know, I understand the money part of it, but it's sort of like uh, the patent office has now kind of twice said there are two, there are two different types of patents here. And so, uh, you know, it just, it just seems to be prolonging the inevitable. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You know, it was uh, Jake Shurkow who's been quoted a lot on this case, a patent attorney with the University of Illinois College of Law, who said, you know, it's it basically taking these facts, it's impossible to come to a different conclusion. Uh, like taking the facts that the, uh, that the patent office has put out as being, these are the facts. <laughs> um, we're talking about the U.S. Patent Office's ruling against UC Berkeley's gene editing patent case for CRISPR with Samantha Zients, a research fellow in intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford, as well as Megan Molteni, a science writer for Stat News. And we'd love to hear from you. What are your questions or opinions about this case and the rollout of CRISPR technology? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the ruling against UC Berkeley in a major patent case around CRISPR, revolutionary genome editing technology, with Megan Molteni, science writer for Stat News, as well as Samantha Zients, a research fellow in intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences down at Stanford. We'd love to hear from you. 
What are your questions or opinions about this case and more generally the rollout of CRISPR technology? And do you work in biotechnology? If you do, do you think that this case will have an impact on your field going forward? Uh, if so, how come? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or, of course, you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Dr. Zients, I wanted to take this to a slightly more philosophical level. And it seems to me that some of the problem with this patent case is just the idea that there's like one inventor or one lab that that comes up with the technology when we really know that lots of groups did and continue to contribute to these discoveries. Do you think that like the patent system as it stands actually reflects well the kind of messiness of innovation within modern science? So actually, that's, a, that's such a great question. You know, so... I think that from like a scientific history standpoint, right, we've always had sort of what we call these simultaneous inventions, right? Mm -hmm. There's, a, there's a, a certain point where there's sort of enough information in the air where people who are paying attention all sort of come up with the same idea, but their own variation on it, right? Mm -hmm. So we saw this with telephones, Right. And then the patent office, to some degree, is like whoever gets there first and proves that, well, at least in the old regime, proves they can reduce it to practice. Right. And so the patent office, I don't know, is necessarily designed to fully reflect how science works, but more how to protect particular ideas, especially from a commercialization standpoint. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so philosophically, I think it's fine to, you know, have lots of different people create a lot of competition for who's going to get there first. And patents are, are in part, not completely, but in part a reward for that. Um, and I think it's why moving to sort of the first to file system. Uh, mm -hmm. actually is a little more beneficial because we don't have to have these fights all the time. It's like whoever got there first. But the first-to-file system may also, uh, I would say, be a little antithetical to, uh, you know, how science may work, right? I may be the first person to understand or come up with an idea, but I may not be able to patent it because my basic research is necessary for somebody to come up with a way to reduce it to practice so that there can be a patent, and then I'm the one who goes in first goes to be the first to file at the patent office. Or worse yet, you get a little of, hey, I have more resources, I can get to the patent office first. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, Megan, um, you've really been following CRISPR closely uh, over the years. And one of the things that I think is difficult for people to understand is how big, when we talk about this being a platform technology or a foundational technology for the future of biotechnology, I mean, how big of a deal was this when it rolled out in the in the 20 teens? Yeah, I mean, the, the scientists who I talk to kind of over and over refer to it as just this watershed revolutionary moment. So if, if you kind of think about what scientists were able to do up until the arrival of, of CRISPR and there are a few older <laughs> genome editing um, you know, technologies as well that we can, we can talk about if we want to, but CRISPR is kind of like the, the, um, souped up <laughs> easiest to use, um, kind of least expensive version of this, but, but essentially scientists could manipulate the, 
you know, genome in ways that were unpredictable. So you could you could put genes in, but you didn't know the methods that they had. They couldn't always be sure where those pieces of DNA were going to wind up. And it's really important <laughs> exactly, you know, where a piece of DNA is um, because, you know, what's on either side of it can impact how it's expressed or, right. you know, well, what we know happens that, like, with that Right. DNA. In gene therapy, that was one of the big problems, right? This was just trying to do genetic engineering in, in human beings, right? We were, able, were causing cancer and things like that. Exactly. And so what CRISPR, the thing that that is really revolutionary about CRISPR is that it allows you in a programmable way to say, I want to go to this place in the genome and I want to, you know, make a change. And that change is uh, predicated on kind of what kind of enzyme you have. So it might be, if it's Cas9, it might be cutting that DNA wholly in two, slicing both strands of the DNA. But there's other enzymes that do other things. You might, you know, nick it or change the single, um, what we call base pair letter, the kind of the alphabet of, of the genetic code. And there's lots of other things you can do, but that kind of GPS system that says, I know I'm going to do it exactly in this place and not these other places, That that's kind of the thing that has totally changed the way that we do both basic research and open up this kind of new frontier in genomic medicine. Because what that allows is that, you know, kind of at scale, you can go in and make tons of changes and, and see what happens. So this has been huge for, you know, basic science. If they just want to say, okay, I want to go into this, say a fly, I want to go into a fruit fly and I want to turn off every one of these genes and I want to see what happens. CRISPR enabled you to do that in just like, uh, at a scale and at a speed that just was totally not feasible before. And so that, you know, that's the reason why if you kind of, if you look at the um, publication history in the decade leading up to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Chaprantier's iconic science paper, there are about 200 publications that mentioned CRISPR. Hmm. And in 2020 alone, there were more than 6,000. And so like, it has just become the go-to molecular um, biology tool for labs just all over the world. So, you know, I think that is kind of, that is the way, I think that is a place where the public has less visibility into how much it has just like, even when it's not, we're not talking about, you know, a CRISPR based medicine going into someone's body, like CRISPR has totally revolutionized like every aspect of kind of just like basic biology research, um, which I think is, you know, important to remember. And then, and then there's also like, you know, we can talk about you know, the genomic medicine piece, but there's also all of the, you know, all the stuff in the bacteria is actually really relevant too. So you're talking about being able to engineer bacteria much quicker um, than, you know, previously. And these bacteria can make different things for us, different kinds of products. Um, you can, you know, engineer bacteria to fix nitrogen. Um, you know, this is being used in agriculture. There's all sorts of gene editing in crop spaces. So, so, you know, I think the, the focus of this patent, you know, decision that we're talking about specifically kind of relates to medicine, but, um, but it's really kind of across sectors that it's making these just massive impacts. Samantha, you studied some of the tool makers, right? The people who have taken the stuff from the, the lab papers and have made it one of these, you know, just basic uh, methodologies for doing science now. Yes, actually I have. And I'm so, I'm so glad Megan brought up uh, what an amazing tool CRISPR in general is, right? Uh, you know, medicine is, uh, you know, the big money area and, and certainly the thing that, you know, captures our imagination. But yeah, biofuels and agriculture and all of the different areas 
that, that, that scientists have been bringing CRISPR into is, is really revolutionary. I mean, we can, agriculture, I think the next big thing actually is going to be CRISPR in agriculture. That's the first place I think we're going to see some real large-scale saleable products. What, right? what will that look like? What, what does CRISPR in agriculture mean? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I mean, uh, now I do understand that uh, CRISPR is not considered a GMO in the U.S. It is in Europe. So uh, one of the things the that genetically allow us... modified organisms. I'm yes, like thank the, you. Like, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's um, uh, you know, and and basically, uh, one of many of our problems is when we uh, the technologies we've used for crops before is sort of splicing out genes and you know recom you know putting in other genes to get particular features in in crops and folks are like well that's not natural to the crop in crispr we don't have to create new seeds we can literally edit the seed for say blight resistance in rice right uh, or wheat and uh you know just turn off uh or turn on a particular gene that this crop will have plant it and now all of a sudden we've got blight resistant crops, which means that we can get higher crop yields, which is great because there are a lot more people in the world and we need to feed them. Um, or we could, you know, create, CRISPR will allow us to create um, even drought resistant uh, crops longer term. We can also use CRISPR for uh, livestock, right? There have been evidence of breeding, uh, you know, cattle that don't have horns so that we don't have to uh, remove the horns from a live animal, which is less painful for them. Um, and so there are lots of other aspects of CRISPR uh, that I think get lost when we talk about these large battles and, and are really a focus of a lot of other, other companies, including even things like diagnostic testing, which we haven't talked about quite yet. Um, some of the new CRISPR enzymes that Megan was, was referring to uh, aren't actually for cutting and pasting genes, but are more for saying, hey, are we seeing this particular sequence of DNA, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a test subject. And mm -hmm. so can we find things like COVID-19? So right. Mammoth Biosciences uh, is one of the companies that's doing stuff like that. Right, right. Let's uh, bring in our first caller, John from Oakland, has some questions about the resolution, perspective resolution of the patent dispute. Welcome, John. Yeah, hi, Alexa. Thank you. Um, for the panelists, here's a general question. Has anybody evaluated the idea of something like a patent clearinghouse where institutions like Cal, MIT, et cetera, would put in and, uh, you know, some kind of sharing thing? What I'm thinking about is from a business standpoint and all the research, we don't want to impede that progress. And yet at the same time, we want to honor the idea of this intellectual property. And I just wonder, you know, like if let's say Cal and MIT got together and said, hey, whether you come to us or them, we're going to bundle these in a way that works for you. Yeah. And I'll take the answer off air. Okay? Great. Thanks, John. Thank you. Samantha? Uh, actually, uh, yes. The answer is yes. People have been trying to create uh, CRISPR patent pools for quite some time. Um, and one of the complications, of course, is that you've got to get both Broad MIT and Cal to agree to be part of these things. And historically, that that hasn't come to fruition. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the implied competition um, and conflict that's been going on at the patent office. I think the more distinct the two sides have kept their patent portfolios, um, the easier it was going to be for them to make their arguments. It's sort of another reason that I'm kind of hoping that uh, you know Berkeley 
doesn't appeal this so that maybe we actually can get a little more forward movement on, on creating some of these patent pools, or at least making it a little easier for companies who need access to both portfolios to get it. Yeah. Uh, Robert writes in, so disheartening to hear my alma mater UC Berkeley talked about like a business. What happened to higher learning for higher learning's sake? And Megan, I want to ask you this. Do you think it's only money that's driving this case forward? Or is it about the historical scientific record and UC Berkeley wanting it to be reflected in a certain way? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And certainly, you know, I think we're we're in a different position now looking back and having these Nobel Prizes already awarded, um, which, you know, certainly from is kind of the highest, (laughs) you know, the highest achievement in the scientific world. But at the time, you know, we're talking about 2012, 2013, there was a real kind of, you know, because this was a race, there was, you know, real jockeying for um, credit and, there's a number of different ways in which credit can be awarded. And obviously patents are only one of them. And one of them is worth billions of dollars. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, there was so there's all sorts of stories from this time about, you know, how these various inventors at these, you know, institutions were, you know, because initially this is kind of ancient CRISPR history, you know, Jennifer Downer and Feng Zhang actually, you know, like they were co-founders of a company together, Editas Medicine. And it wasn't until Jennifer realized that um, kind of this patent maneuvering had been happening, you know, in the background um, that 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 kind of created this bad blood and she pulled out of the company and, uh-huh. and started her own. And so I, I think that a lot of that stuff early on about establishing, you know, who really did what, who did the transformational steps to like, you know, make this a revolutionary technology, the patents were one, you know, were one thing. And the thinking was, well, you know, patents decision might influence like prize committee, um, Mm. you know, people on those committees. And I, you know, it's interesting that we've seen it, you know, kind of not break down that way. Um, You know, Fung has certainly won a number of prizes, but not, but not the biggest one, despite, you know, a lot of lobbying work um, on, on the, on the part of leaders at the Broad Institute. And so, you know, I think, like I said, I think there, in some ways, that was part of what was going on, you know, at the beginning of this patent fight, and um, you know, was about you know establishing who you know who who did this scientifically. Um, so I don't think it was always about about the money. Um, you know, I think there's also, you know, one one thing that came out of this most recent round of patent um, dispute is that there was some. Um, you know, not great behavior happening um, on the side of a broad collaborator. If you, according to these court filings, one of the the things that the UC Berkeley side was arguing um, and presenting new evidence about was that one of the broad collaborators had actually received an early um, confidential manuscript copy of Down and Charpentier's 2012 manuscript and and that he had attended a conference where those um, results had been presented and that then conveyed that information um, to the, you know, to Zhang's lab. Um, and that led to them doing some of these, you know, experiments that then led to being having success in eukaryotic cells. And obviously that wasn't the whole thing. They did lots of other things to kind of optimize it for eukaryotic cells. But what the, what the, um, 
UC, you know, lawyers were arguing was that, you know, there was some, there was some, yeah, just like questionable, questionable behavior about how the Broad group kind of came upon this information. And that might be in, in terms of like scientific ethics and standards of what, you know, scientists are Mm -hmm. supposed to do that probably crossed, you know, some red lines there, but from the patent office's um, point of view, they stated very clearly that that, you know, they did not see that as having any bearing on the question at hand, which was this reduced to practice. And so I think that was another place where we see these, you know, differing standards between scientific um, discovery and kind of inventorship, which is a much more narrow um, sort of definition kind of, you know, come, come to a head, you know, in a really, a really public and high stakes way. Yeah. You know, listener Shelby tweets, uh, and this one's for you, Samantha, wouldn't a patent like this be one that no one should get a patent or should be determined for general use? Or how do patents like that work, those types of things that are life-saving medications, machines, and determined for all? This is just a question we, you know, uh, we in my field get all the time, right? Should we even be patenting, uh, you know, basic platforms, um, and the jury's kind of out on exactly what the effect is because there are two, uh, you know, there are basically two fat forces that push against each other. So one is sort of access is important, right? Everybody should have access to, to CRISPR, right? And the idea that we have a patent on it that protect, potentially prevents as much uh, innovation around it as possible seems like a bad thing. Right, and the first thing I'll say about CRISPR is that uh, from uh, from the actual academic labs, there is no restrictions. Right, so so the patent that we're talking about so far, especially given the, what the Broad has decided to do, is only about companies. Right, so. Um, uh, you know, there's so much innovation going on still in the labs as basic science learning about CRISPR. So that is, um, you know, one thing to think about. The alternative is if we don't have patents in this space, then it's really hard for people to, kn- to know what it is that um, the invention is. So then we have to... Um, you know, basically companies need something to to uh, negotiate over, and that's what, what the patents can do. So it creates a market. We're talking about the CRISPR patent saga with Samantha Zients, Research Fellow in Intellectual Property. We'll be right back with more. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the CRISPR genome editing technology patent saga with Samantha Zients, a research fellow in intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences here at Stanford University, and Megan Molteni, a science writer for Stat News who covers CRISPR pretty much every day, from what I can tell. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions or opinions about this case and the rollout of CRISPR technology? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Do you work in biotechnology, and do you think this case will have any impact on your field going forward? You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Some listener comments here. Gregory writes, the corporations always win. Always corporations will own the patents and eventually own it all. And the Googles of gene editing will be created and they will make trillions of dollars designing new genes for the billionaires and the poor will continue to eat each other at the bottom in our ruthless Darwinian corporate capitalism. Uh, Kyler from a slightly different angle, writes, I am an engineer in the medical device industry and have done a fair amount of patent work, and I've concluded we would all be better off as humans if it was a free-for-all and IP generally did not exist, especially when you start getting into software patents. The large tech companies have patents on some of the most broad features that everyone uses, and the consensus is they would never actually act on these patents, but that could change anytime. It's a crazy system. Uh, one more. Uh, Jeremy writes, is anyone else reminded of And the Band Played On? It's the telling of the true story of the quote-unquote discovery of HIV and the subsequent patent fight, which took over six months to determine during which time research was stalled. That six months of delayed life-saving research, let's hope that this quest for the glory of the discovery doesn't get in the way of its life-saving possibilities. The band still plays on. And Megan... Do you think this is getting in the way of prospective, really important, you know, therapies for human beings? You know, I, I'm not inside these companies every day, so I can't I can't answer this completely. But I do get the sense that, you know, the um, we have been moving very fast to clinic with CRISPR based medicines, almost, I mean, just almost kind of shockingly fast. So right now there are seven clinical trials that are open for using CRISPR based medicines to treat sickle cell disease. And those represent, um, let's see, there are about two dozen kind of worldwide. And that if you include kind of using CRISPR um, based immunotherapies where you're editing T cells to go after cancer. So it has been you know, I, you know, I think the pace, I think, would argue against the idea that, um, you know, that innovation has really been stymied in, in the interim. You know, I think one thing that um, is not always appreciated by the public or even many biotech folks is that these original 2012 CRISPR patents are going to expire in 2032, which is about 10 years from now. And the length of time, you know, it takes for a new drug program to actually become commercial, which is the point at which if you wanted to enforce a patent, um, that that's the time in which you would, you know, litigate. Um, you know, so these new drug programs that are starting now, they may not even need a license on kind of these original CRISPR patents because, you know, they may not be commercial products before the patent expires. And and also, you know, the other thing I think to remember here is that, like, if you're going to sue in that case, what you're saying is you can't bring this 
medicine, which, you know, the FDA has has said works and is potentially life saving. And, and you can't bring that to market. Um, and also, like, I can't essentially like you'd be locking it up and no one like, it's a really bad look. Like no one wants to say Martin Screlly. He's ready for it. I mean, yeah. it's it's not impossible, but it is, you know, it is a. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's not good optics. So, you know, I, I think that is certainly like kind of the farthest out fear, but I, I would be surprised if that's if that's really where this winds up going. Kind of the people I'm talking to sense that these companies are going to work it out. There's going to be licensing deals. They'll pay royalties like the, their money will be exchanged, but like the medicine will keep moving forward. Let's bring in Barbara from Lincoln, California. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, I just had a question, and it might get a little, I guess, somewhat off topic, um, so I apologize for that. But I had a question about the application of CRISPR. Um, I'm a parent to a toddler that has developed pretty serious nut allergies and things like that. Um, is it possible for this technology to eventually cure things that are developed later in life? Or, like, and we talk about, like, cancer and these really big diseases, but what about, like, normal everyday things that parents deal with that can be huge problems for children down the line. Is there any research being done around Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Hey, Barbara, thanks so much for that question. You know, Megan, I know that you're not doing this research yourself, but you're covering the field and the companies that are are working on stuff like this. Uh, Is that something that is in the offering or on the roadmap? Yeah, there are there are actually um, researchers and companies who specifically on the kind of food allergy angle are tackling this problem, although they're kind of coming at it from the other side. So can you edit the plants themselves so that they produce peanuts that don't have, you know, these allergens in it? Um, that There are companies that are actively working on that. And I could imagine that allergens, you know, will be a a focus for a number of these kind of designer agricultural um, companies going forward. You know, there is a big debate as far as like coming to it from kind of the like a human medicine side, there is kind of a, a big conversation going on about where this is all headed. And, you know, the applications that we're seeing for it right now are understandably in these very kind of low hanging um, genetic diseases where it's very clear, you know, this mutation to this gene causes this disease. And if you fix it this way, or you, you know, that, that like that ameliorates those symptoms. And the question is, can CRISPR also be applied down the road to more complex diseases. So where there's interactions of lots of genes with the environment, or as you say, like allergens where like, you know, environment and immune system and all of these things um, are all coming together. And the consensus is generally that like, yes, we will be able to, and it probably won't be this manifestation of CRISPR that we're talking about. Like it may be um, what's called a epigenome editor. So a version of CRISPR that doesn't cut DNA, but it um, changes the gene expression, turns a gene on or turns a gene off. Um, it may be that you're actually engine using CRISPR to engineer immune cells so that you kind of are tuning the immune response that, um, you know, a body has to, you know, deal with autoimmune disorders, which allergies are. So I think all of that's stuff is something that people are really interested in and they're talking about. And it's just further out on the horizon because we're only in the early days 
phase one clinical trials of seeing that it works in patients with these serious genetic diseases. And so we want to be sure that it's safe and effective and, you know, that it's not going to produce some, um, you know, unforeseen consequences. Um, so we want to make sure that we're following these patients for years before we start transitioning it to apply for kind of less serious diseases. I think a lot of that is sort of overshadowed, like shadowed by the history of gene therapy, right, where there were these kind of tragic uh, cases back in the early 2000s. Um, I want to bring in a listener comment here. Listener writes, blight-resistant crops can feed more people. They're quoting uh, Samantha here. Blight-resistant crops can feed more people, breed cattle without horns, which is kinder to the animals. If this discussion touts the benefits of genetic engineering, what about the ethical and environmental dangers of such endeavors? Samantha, how do you uh, respond to that? I uh, always knew this question would come up, um, uh, but in the all the years that I've been uh, studying CRISPR, and I've been looking at this since, uh, you know, uh, 2013, 2014, when it first came out, um, it amazes me how fast we go from, oh, look at all this cool stuff that CRISPR t- can do to, you know, sci-fi dystopian Gattaca, right? <laughs> it, go, it, goes, it goes there really fast, because it seems like science fiction. Um, and, the, and the truth is, yes, there are some very serious ethical questions uh, about CRISPR. I mean, I mean, certainly uh, in 2018, uh, uh, Dr. He in China ostensibly uh, birthed real gene-edited babies. This is a huge problem. Right, because again, as Megan was saying, we don't even know if this is safe for for you know humans that are already alive who just need uh, somatic editing, you know, uh, you know, to to change uh, genes in their in in living people. To edit an embryo actually means that those edits could potentially get passed on to their children too, and we don't know what that does. Um, and so, understandably, the scientific community uh, absolutely, you know, uh, shunned this this experiment. But now we have living humans that we we have to to watch and care for um, over gene edited in CRISPR. So it's not like this is, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not like CRISPR is is the savior of all things. It's we have to be careful, and we being the scientific community too. Um, and Jennifer Doudna and uh, has actually stood up as a leader in this area, and you know has brought the community together to try to figure out how do we prevent things like this from happening again, mm-hmm. because CRISPR is such a major, major um, u- tool for the, uh, the bio community that they don't want the same thing to happen to this that happened to, as you've been pointing out, gene therapy. We can't lose this. And so they're trying to be v- very, very careful with trying to figure out how to lay out the ethics and how to make sure that, uh, you know, what, what the community would deem unethical uh, experiments, um, you know, are getting reported. <clears throat> I want to go to uh, Jason in San Lorenzo. Welcome to the program. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Jason, go ahead. So I was going to ask about the same topic, actually, about... Uh, uh, what the guests uh, had mentioned about uh, use in agriculture and getting used and uh, released into the environment, as well as on a potentially positive side, um, uh, helping nature um, uh, fight forest fires. Uh, before your guest answers on that subject, uh, I just wanted to 
mention uh, read some of the other comments that there doesn't have to be an all or nothing repatents. Uh, laws can be tweaked and made better. It's not uh, an all or nothing. And and finally, UC Berkeley and others earn money to pay for their curriculum and their research. Uh, so it is valuable to, to universities. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Jason. Megan, I think we'll go to you, perhaps, like sort of the CRISPR impact on, on crops. and. Yeah, so I think... Um... I don't the 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 wildfire question. I just <laughs> have not heard of that before, and so my mind is just racing about how it might be applied there. Um, you know, I think what, when we're talking about unintended consequences, I do. I have been speaking to people who, um, you know, work in the organics field and also kind of. Um, you know, seed saving communities. And they are actually pretty concerned about the way that CRISPR has ushered in this um, rush on patenting specific genetic uh, changes in, in plant genomes. And so, you know, I think they're, again, like this is a question about, it's this really powerful tool and how is that tool being used? And is it being used in a way that is going to, you know, net benefit society or it's going to just, you know, line the pockets of, you know, big industry. And so there, the concern here is that, you know, if you can easily change, you know, just a couple of letters in a genome or, you know, make, make other, you know, easy changes that then these big agricultural and seed companies can lock up all those changes. And so Mm -hmm. that even if you're a traditional breeder and that little bit of DNA, like happens to be in the plants that you're, you never touched any stock, you know, no seed stock or germplasm from these companies, but that, that bit of code like exist in the genomes of your plants, like technically you could be infringing on their patents. And we know that these companies have been very vicious about patent fights. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's an emerging concern that is important to keep an eye on. Um, So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think the point I think is that CRISPR is a, is a tool and we as a society are going to have to continue over and over in the, you know, coming decades over what are acceptable uses of it, um, you know, and what kind of, you know, world do we want to live in? And, you know, that, that's a question that goes beyond the scientific community. That's, that's a question for all of us. Yeah. A comment from uh, Joshua. Joshua writes, I'm a biotech patent attorney, so this is pretty close to my day-to-day life. I agree with your guest who suggested that money will change hands, but the drug development will march on. It's an important point to remember. For a patent to prevent an approved drug from going to market, a federal judge would have to issue an injunction against the company who developed the drug when there are no other alternatives for patients available. It is highly unlikely for a judge to ever do this. You know, Megan, I wanted to return us to the patent dispute that we were talking about at the at the very top. You mentioned uh, something kind of wrap it up for us, which are there are a whole bunch of other perspective technologies now, other ways of doing genome editing that are not using this CRISPR-Cas9 system. And we had uh, earlier someone ask whether this would actually become, this would make this core patent fight somewhat irrelevant to the actual technological development of genome editing. I I think it's a question that we're all really waiting to see how it 
plays out. Um, you know, there are now, so there's, there are these, what I call kind of CRISPR 2.0, CRISPR 3.0. These are things that are like called base editing or prime editing, which instead of just making a cut and allowing the cell to stitch it back however they want, you can actually really go in and say, I just want to like erase out this letter and put in this one, or I want to kind of drag and drop a piece of DNA into this place. And some of those are based on the original kind of CRISPR-Cas9 system, at least conceptually, if not with the actual kind of molecular hardware. But there are also base editors that don't rely on Cas9 at all. They kind of come out of these earlier systems called talons and zinc fingers. Um, and I think the important thing is just like as simultaneously as kind of CRISPR-Cas9 based medicines are moving, you know, toward the clinic, you also kind of have this like horizontal expansion of um, all of these different kinds of tools. And so all of those are obviously, you know, getting patented themselves. And the question is, does, as all of these little pieces all get kind of you know, as the universe of CRISPR expands and kind of patents lock all of them up, like does owning a part of it actually become less and less valuable? Like, so mm -hmm. that, you know, we wind up, it winds up really not like everyone can have, if everyone can have their tool and it does, you know, the thing they want it to do, then maybe like we don't have to be having these patent fights. And I think, you know, that was really not obvious at the beginning of this. And, you know, in 2012, like it was kind of like it, we thought it, maybe it would be <laughs> kind of all or nothing. Um, and so I think, yeah, that that has yet to play out, but certainly, um, certainly, I think the the fact that this initial, I actually think that the fact that this initial patent fight happened kind of forced all of this innovation, like <laughs> the uncertainty, like forced all these people to go looking in, you know, in mines and, um, you know, <laughs> out out in these, you know, hot springs and find new bacteria and engineer new nucleases. And so I, I think, you know, I have this hypothesis that, you know, it will actually kind of be a net boon to the field. And, you know, we'll look back 20 years from now and be like, wow, that, that patent fight was <laughs> kind of, kind of silly, but it had this, you know, kind of other catalytic massive effect. Yeah. catalytic effect. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've been talking about the CRISPR patent saga and the overall use of CRISPR technology with Megan Molteni, a science writer for Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. As well as Samantha Zients, a research fellow in intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford University. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susie Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. With help from Lakshmi Sarah, Judy Campbell's lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Decent birthday around here sometime. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, 
Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.